0: Here, Saints, you're listening to Read Like a Lutheran on Double-Edged Sword, our Lenten read-through the Book of Concord. If you'd like a copy of the schedule, you can find it in the show notes, or you can get a copy by contacting Pastor Kilgo at kilgosr at gmail.com. May you be richly blessed as you meditate on these confessions of the Lutheran Church. The Augsburg Confession, Articles 21 through 26. The Augsburg Confession, Article 21 Worship of the Saints. Our churches teach that the history of saints may be set before us so that we may follow the example of their faith and good works according to our calling. For example, the emperor may follow the example of David in making war to drive away the Turk from his country. For both are kings. But the scriptures do not teach that we are to call on the saints or to ask the saints for help. Scripture sets before us the one Christ as the mediator, atoning sacrifice, high priest, and intercessor. He is to be prayed to. He has promised that he will hear our prayer. This is the worship that he approves above all other worship that he be called upon in all afflictions. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. A Summary Statement This, then, is nearly a complete summary of our teaching. As can be seen, there is nothing that varies from the Scriptures, or from the Church Universal, or from the Church of Rome, as known from its writers. Since this is the case, those who insist that our teachers are to be regarded as heretics are judging harshly. There is, however, disagreement on certain abuses that have crept into the Church without rightful authority. Even here, if there are some differences, the bishops should bear with us patiently because of the confession we have just reviewed. Even the Church's canon law is not so severe that it demands the same rights everywhere, nor, for that matter, have the rites of all churches ever been the same, although in large part the ancient rites are diligently observed among us. It is a false and hate-filled charge that our churches have abolished all the ceremonies instituted in ancient times, but the abuses connected with the ordinary rites have been a common source of complaint. They have been corrected to some extent since they could not be approved with a good conscience a review of the various abuses that have been corrected. Our churches do not dissent from any article of faith held by the Church Catholic. They only omit some of the newer abuses. They have been erroneously accepted through the corruption of the times, contrary to the intent of canon law. Therefore, we pray that your Imperial Majesty will graciously hear what has been changed and why these people are not compelled to observe those things that are abuses against their conscience. Your Imperial Majesty should not believe those who have tried to stir up hatred against us by spreading strange lies among the people. They have given rise to this controversy by stirring up the minds of good people. Now they are trying to increase the controversy using the same methods your imperial majesty will undoubtedly find that the form of doctrine and ceremonies among us are not as intolerable as these ungodly and ill-intentioned men claim. Besides, the truth cannot be gathered from common rumors or the attacks of enemies. It can easily be judged that if the churches observed ceremonies correctly, their dignity would be maintained and reverence and piety would increase among the people." Article 22. Both Kinds in the Sacrament The laity are given both kinds in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper because this practice has the Lord's command. Drink of it, all of you. Christ has clearly commanded that all should drink from the cup. Unless anyone misleadingly says this refers only to priests, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul cites an example. From this it appears that the whole congregation used both kinds. This practice has remained in the church for a long time. It is not known when or by whom or by whose authority it was changed. Cardinal Cusanus mentions the time when it was approved. Cyprian in some places testifies that the blood was given to the people. Jerome testifies to the same thing when he says the priests administer the Eucharist and distribute the blood of Christ to the people. Indeed, Pope Galatius commands that the sacrament not be divided. Only a recent custom has changed this. It is clear that any custom introduced against God's commandments is not to be allowed, as church law bears witness. This custom has been received, not only against the scripture, but also against old canon law and the example of the church. Therefore, if anyone preferred to use both kinds in the sacrament, they should not have been compelled to do otherwise, as an offense against their conscience. Because the division of the sacrament does not agree with the ordinance of Christ, it is our custom to omit the procession with the host, which has been used before. Article 23 The Marriage of Priests Complaints about unchaste priests are common. Platina writes that it is for this reason that Pope Pius is reported to have said that although there are reasons why marriage was taken away from priests, there are far more important reasons why it should be given back. Since our priests wanted to avoid these open scandals, they married wives and taught that it was lawful for them to enter into marriage. First, because Paul says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. And... It is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Second, Christ says not everyone can receive this saying, where he teaches that not everyone is able to lead a single life. God created human beings for procreation. It is not within a person's power without God giving a unique gift to change this creation. For it is clear, as many have confessed, that no good, honest, chaste life No Christian, sincere, upright conduct has resulted from the attempt to lead a single life. Instead, a horrible, fearful unrest and torment of conscience has been felt by many until the end. Therefore, those who are not able to lead a single life ought to marry. No human law, no vow, can destroy God's commandment and ordinance. For these reasons, the priests teach that it is lawful for them to marry wives. It is clear that in the ancient church priests were married men. For Paul says an overseer must be the husband of one wife. 400 years ago in Germany, for the first time, priests were violently forced to lead a single life. They offered such resistance that when the archbishop of Mainz was about to publish the pope's decree about celibacy, he was almost killed in a riot by enraged priests. This matter was handled so harshly that not only was marriage forbidden in the future, but existing marriages were torn apart, contrary to all laws, both divine and human. This was even contrary to canon law itself, as made not only by popes, but also by the most celebrated synods. Seeing that man's nature is gradually growing weaker as the world grows older, it is good to be on guard, to make sure no more vices work their way into Germany. Furthermore, God ordained marriage to be a help against human weakness. Canon law itself says that the old rigor ought to be relaxed now and then, in these latter times, because of human weakness. We wish this would also be done in this matter. We expect that at some point churches will lack pastors if marriage continues to be forbidden. While God's commandment is in force and the custom of the church is well known, Impure celibacy will cause many scandals, adulteries, and other crimes that deserve punishment from just rulers. In light of all of this, it is incredibly cruel that the marriage of priests is forbidden. God has commanded that marriage be honored. Marriage is most highly honored in the laws of all well-ordered commonwealths, even among the heathen. But now men, even priests, are cruelly put to death, contrary to the intent of canon law for no other reason that they are married. Paul in 1 Timothy 4 says that a doctrine of demons forbids marriage. This is clearly seen by how laws against marriage are enforced with such penalties. Since no human law can destroy God's command, neither can it be done by any vow. So Cyprian advises women who do not keep the promise they made to remain chaste, that they should marry. He says, If they are unwilling or unable to persevere, it is better for them to marry than to fall into the fire of their lusts. They should certainly give no offense to their brothers and sisters. And even canon law shows some leniency toward those who have taken vows before the proper age, as has been the case up to this point. Article 24. The Mass. Our churches are falsely accused of abolishing the Mass. The Mass is held among us and celebrated with the highest reverence. Nearly all the usual ceremonies are also preserved, except that the parts are sung in Latin are interspersed here and there with German hymns. These have been added to teach the people. For ceremonies are needed for this reason alone, that the uneducated be taught what they need to know about Christ. Not only has Paul commanded that a language understood by the people be used in church, but human law has also commanded it. All those able to do so partake of the sacrament together. This also increases the reverence and devotion of public worship. No one is admitted to the sacrament without first being examined. The people are also advised about the dignity and use of the sacrament, about how it brings great consolation to anxious consciences so that they too may learn to believe God and to expect and ask from him all that is good. This worship pleases God. Such use of the sacrament nourishes true devotion toward God. Therefore, it does not appear that the Mass is more devoutly celebrated among our adversaries than among us. It is clear that for a long time the most public and serious complaint among all good people is that the Mass has been made base and profane, by using it to gain filthy wealth. Everyone knows how great this abuse is in all the churches. They know what sort of men say masses for a fee or an income, and how many celebrate these masses contrary to canon law. Paul severely threatens those who use the Eucharist in an unworthy manner. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Therefore, when our priests were warned about this sin, private masses were discontinued among us, since hardly any private masses were celebrated except for the sake of filthy gain. The bishops were not ignorant of these abuses. If they had corrected them in time, there would now be less discord. But until now they have been responsible for many corruptions seeping into the church. Now, when it is too late, they begin to complain about the church's troubles. This disturbance has been caused simply by those abuses that were so open that they could no longer be tolerated. There have been great disagreements about the Mass, that is, the sacrament. Perhaps the world is being punished for profaning the Mass for such a long time, and for tolerating this in the churches for so many centuries by the very men who were both able and duty-bound to correct the situation. It is written in the Ten Commandments, The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. But since the world began, nothing that God ever ordained seems to have been so abused for filthy wealth as the Mass. An opinion was added that infinitely increased private Masses. It states that Christ, by his Passion, made satisfaction for original sin and instituted the Mass as an offering for daily sins, both venial and mortal. From this opinion has arisen the common belief that the mass takes away the sins of the living and the dead simply by performing the outward act. They then began to argue about whether one mass, said for many, is worth as much as a special mass for individuals. This resulted in an infinite number of masses. With this work, people wanted to obtain from God all that they needed, and in the meantime, trust in Christ and true worship were forgotten. Our teachers have warned that these opinions depart from the Holy Scripture and diminish the glory of the Passion of Christ. For Christ's Passion was an offering and satisfaction, not only for original guilt but also for all other sins. As it is written, We have been sanctified through the offering of the Body of Jesus Christ once for all. Also, by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It is an unheard-of innovation in the Church to teach that by his death, Christ has made satisfaction only for original sin, and not for all other sin. So it is hoped that everybody will understand that this error has been rebuked for good reason. Scripture teaches that we are justified before God through faith in Christ when we believe that our sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. Now, if the Mass takes away the sins of the living and the dead simply by performing it, justification comes by doing Masses and not of faith. Scripture does not allow this, but Christ commands us, do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, the Mass was instituted so that those who use the sacrament should remember, in faith, the benefits they receive through Christ, and how their anxious consciences are cheered and comforted. To remember Christ is to remember his benefits. It means to realize that they are truly offered to us. It is not enough only to remember history— The Jewish people and the ungodly also remember this. Therefore, the Mass is to be used for administering the sacrament to those that need consolation. Ambrose says, Because I always sin, I always need to take the medicine. Because the Mass is for the purpose of giving the sacrament, we have communion every holy day, and if anyone desires the sacrament, we also offer it on other days, when it is given to those who ask for it. This custom is not new in the church. The fathers before Gregory make no mention of any private mass, but they speak a lot about the common mass, communion. Chrysostom says that the priest stands daily at the altar, inviting some to the communion and keeping back others. It appears from the ancient council decisions that one person celebrated the mass, from whom all the other presbyters and deacons received the body and blood of the Lord. The records of the decisions of the Council of Nicaea state, let the deacons, according to their order, receive the Holy Communion after the presbyters, from the bishop or from a presbyter. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 has this command in regard to communion. Wait for one another, so that there may be a common participation. Since, therefore, the Mass among us follows the example of the Church taken from the Scripture and the Fathers, we are confident that it cannot be disapproved. This is especially so because we keep the public ceremonies, which are for the most part similar to those previously in use. Only the number of masses differs. Without a doubt, these might be reduced in a helpful way because of very great and clear abuses. For in older times, even in churches attended the most often, the mass was not celebrated every day as the tripartite history testifies. In Alexandria, every Wednesday and Friday the scriptures are read, and the doctors expound them, and all things are done except the solemn rite of communion. Article 25. Confession. Confession in the churches is not abolished among us. The body of the Lord is not usually given to those who have not been examined and absolved. The people are very carefully taught about faith in the absolution. Before, There was profound silence about faith. Our people are taught that they should highly prize the absolution as being God's voice and pronounced by God's command. The power of the keys is set forth in its beauty. They are reminded what great consolation it brings to anxious consciences, and that God requires faith to believe such absolution as a voice sounding from heaven. They are taught that such faith in Christ truly obtains and receives the forgiveness of sins before satisfactions were praised without restraint, but little was said about faith, Christ's merit, and the righteousness of faith. Therefore, on this point, our churches are by no means to be blamed. Even our adversaries have to concede the point that our teachers have diligently taught the doctrine of repentance and laid it open. Our churches teach that naming every sin is not necessary, and that consciences should not be burdened with worry about naming every sin. It is impossible to recount all sins as Psalm 19 testifies. Who can discern his errors? Also, Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If only sins that can be named are forgiven, consciences could never find peace. For many sins cannot be seen or remembered. The ancient writers also testify, the listing of sins is not necessary. For in the decrees, Christensom is quoted. He says, I do not say that you should make your sins known in public, nor that you should accuse yourself before others, but I would have you obey the prophet who says, make known your ways before God. Therefore confess your sins before God, the true judge, with prayer. Tell your errors not with the tongue, but with the memory of your conscience, and so forth. And the gloss admits that confession is of only human right. Nevertheless, because of the great benefit of absolution, and because it is otherwise useful to the conscience, confession is retained among us. Article 26. The Distinction of Meats Not only the people, but also those teaching in the Church have greatly been persuaded to believe in making distinctions between meats and similar human traditions, they believe that these are useful works for meriting grace and are able to make satisfaction for sins. From this, there developed the view that new ceremonies, new orders, new holy days, and new fastings were instituted daily. Teachers in the Church required these works as a necessary service to merit grace. They greatly terrified people's consciences when they left any of these things out. Because of this viewpoint, the Church has suffered great damage. First, the chief part of the gospel, the doctrine of grace and of the righteousness of faith, has been obscured by this view. The gospel should stand out as the most prominent teaching in the church, in order that Christ's merit may be well known and faith which believes that sins are forgiven for Christ's sake be exalted far above works. Therefore, Paul also lays the greatest stress on this article, putting aside the law and human traditions, in order to show that Christian righteousness is something other than such works. Christian righteousness is the faith that believes that sins are freely forgiven for Christ's sake, but this doctrine of Paul has been almost completely smothered by traditions, which have produced the opinions that we must merit grace and righteousness by making distinctions in meats and similar services. When repentance was taught, there was no mention made of faith. Only works of satisfaction were set forth and so repentance seemed to stand entirely on these works. Second, these traditions have hindered God's commandments, because traditions were placed far above God's commandments. Christianity was taught to stand wholly on the observance of certain holy days, rites, fasts, and vestments. These observances won the exalted title of the spiritual life and the perfect life. Meanwhile, God's commandments according to each one's vocation or calling were without honor. These works include a father raising his children, a mother bearing children, a prince governing the commonwealth. These were considered to be worldly and thus imperfect works far below the glittering observances of the Church. This error greatly tormented people with devout consciences. They grieved that they were held in an imperfect state of life, as in marriage, in the office of ruler or other civil services. They admired the monks and others like them. They falsely thought that these people's observances were more acceptable to God. Third, traditions brought great danger to consciences. It was impossible to keep all traditions, and yet people considered these observances to be necessary acts of worship. Gerson writes that many people fell into despair, and that some even took their own lives, because they felt that they were not able to satisfy the traditions. All the while, they had never heard about the consoling righteousness of faith and grace. We see that the academics and theologians gather the traditions and seek ways to relieve and ease consciences. They do not free consciences enough, but sometimes entangle them even more. The schools and sermons have been so occupied with gathering these traditions that they do not even have enough leisure time to touch on scripture. They do not pursue the far more useful doctrine of faith, the cross, hope, the dignity of secular affairs, and consolation for severely tested consciences. Therefore, Garrison and some other theologians have complained, sadly, that because of all this striving after traditions, they were prevented from giving attention to a better kind of doctrine. Augustine forbids that people's consciences should be burdened. He prudently advises Januarius that he must know that they are to be observed as things neither commanded by God nor forbidden, for such are his words. Therefore our teachers must not be regarded as having taken up this matter rashly or from hatred of the bishops, as some falsely suspect. There was a great need to warn the churches of these errors, That arose from misunderstanding the traditions. The Gospel compels us to insist on the doctrine of grace and the righteousness of faith in the churches. This cannot be understood if people think that they merit grace by observances of their own choice. So, our churches have taught that we cannot merit grace or be justified by observing human traditions. We must not think that such observances are necessary acts of worship. Here we add testimonies of Scripture. Christ defends the apostles, who had not observed the usual tradition. This had to do with a matter that was not unlawful, but rather neither commanded or forbidden. It was similar to the purifications of the law. He said in Matthew 15, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Therefore, he does not require a useless human service. Shortly after, he adds, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. So also Paul in Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And in Colossians 2, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a Sabbath. And again, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, you submit to regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Peter says, Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Here, Peter forbids burdening consciences with many rites, either from Moses or others. In First Timothy 4, Paul calls the prohibition of meats a teaching of demons. It is contrary to the gospel to institute or do such works thinking that we merit grace through them, or as though Christianity could not exist without such service of God. Our adversaries object by accusing our teachers of being against discipline and the subduing of the flesh. Just the opposite is true, as can be learned from our teachers' writings. They have always taught that Christians are to bear the cross by enduring afflictions. This is genuine and sincere subduing of the flesh, to be crucified with Christ through various afflictions. Furthermore, they teach that every Christian ought to train and subdue himself with bodily restraints or bodily exercises and labors. Then neither overindulgence or laziness may tempt him to sin. But they do not teach that we may merit grace or make satisfaction for sins by such exercises. Such outward discipline ought to be taught at all times, not only on a few set days. Christ commands, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. Also in Matthew 17, this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Paul also says, I discipline my body and keep it under control. Here he clearly shows that he was keeping his body under control not to merit forgiveness of sin by that discipline, but to keep his body in subjection and prepared for spiritual things, for carrying out the duties of his calling. Therefore we do not condemn fasting in itself, but the traditions that require certain days and certain meats, with peril of conscience, as though such works were a necessary service. Nevertheless, we keep many traditions that are leading to good order in the church, such as the order of scripture lessons in the Mass and the chief holy days. At the same time, we warn people that such observances do not justify us before God, and that it is not sinful if we omit such things without causing offense. The fathers knew of such freedom in human ceremonies. In the East, they kept Easter at another time than at Rome, When the Romans accused the Eastern Church of schism, they were told by others that such practices do not need to be the same everywhere. Irenaeus says, diversity concerning fasting does not destroy the harmony of faith. Pope Gregory says that such diversity does not violate the unity of the church. In the Tripartite History, Book 9, many examples of different rites are gathered, and the following statement is made. It was not the mind of the apostles to enact rules concerning holy days, but to preach godliness and holy life. Thanks again for listening to Read Like a Lutheran on Double-Edged Sword. If you're in the Lawrence area, please consider joining us for church on Sundays at 10 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We also have a variety of Bible studies available, which you can find by visiting our website at redeemer-lawrence.org. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to contact us. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you in his mercy.